Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome back to the Game Football Podcast from The Times. Today, David Moyes' West Ham aren't at their best, but they still beat Chelsea. What does it mean for the title race with victories for both Liverpool and Manchester City? We'll discuss Newcastle's first win of the season, how Steven Gerrard's changed things at Villa Park. You'll also hear from the Arsenal goalkeeper Aaron Ramsdale. This is The Game. Hello, welcome back to the Game Podcast. I'm Hugh Wozencroft alongside Alison Rudd, Thomas Roddy and Tom Clark on this Monday morning. Before we get to Alison's trip to Villa Park on Sunday, our very own Francis Bourgeois is here. Tom Clark, do you know who that is? I, I think I do, yes. Yeah, yeah. I think I do. We've had a lot of fun about this, haven't we, Hugh? Yeah, we Lots have. of laughs. Good friend of yours. He is, yeah. He likes a train to Lincoln, so top lad. <laughs> top lad, that's all it is, clearly. Um, I also like the formal use of Thomas Roddy. Is that a new thing? Is that requested, Tom? It's, no, it's every single time, and it throws me because I'm terrified my mum's in the room telling me. <laughs> she must have a deep voice, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's get to Alison's Sunday afternoon trip to Villa Park then. Uh, just to start, because we know it was, um, well, look, Alison, it's, it, was, it was the sort of trip that's trapped a nerve. <laughs> no, I had a trapped nerve before I went to Villa Park, so I'm not going to blame the marvellous Stephen Gerrard. He is doing something special there because they're not good enough as a team. And there were periods in the first half of that game where you thought, oh, Leicester outclassing this lot. You've got John McGinn, who is, um, he's been shortlisted for one of the Premier League's players of November. He's sort of like, he reminds me a lot of Stephen Gerrard himself, actually, who's always offering an outlet. He's urging people on. He's trying to find the clever ball. He's trying to be everybody trying to do everything but he's surrounded by players that qu- aren't quite good enough to be on his wavelength that team needs a, a better midfield and there were large chunks of the first half where Leicester was showing how a midfield operates and you were thinking oh you know how you know Stephen Gerrard is, has got quite a big building job to do here how far can they go on emotion but he's doing it and he laid into them at half time and what they lack in comparable skill to Leicester's team they more than made up for with belief in the system energy always trying to win the ball back and uh, the, the remarkable thing is actually that even when they're being outclassed they don't stop trying to play good football they're imaginative and they mix it up and they're constantly trying and that was a win based on doing it for a manager that they clearly have bought into also interesting, just, just to add, was that Leicester did sort of fall apart, even though they were superior. Brendan Rodgers afterwards was really angry, you could tell, because their set-piece defending is abysmal. And it's letting them down, because in, in other respects, they're a classy team who do nice stuff, but they're not defending well. And uh, he's cross. And of course, it now means that Leicester are below Villa in the table. Absolutely. Um, I should have given you these stats to begin with. Three wins out of four as Villa boss for Steven Gerrard. A 2-1 win over Leicester. They're 11th in the table. 
that defending at set pieces, 10 conceded now. That's excluding penalties, of course. No side in the Premier League has conceded more in that manner. I'm looking at you, Tom. Yes, I guess. Because before I came in, you looked like you wanted to speak, so I... Did I? Well, actually, it was more on the Villa side. I was interested uh, in what Alison thought about whether whether this was a, a, a managerial bounce at all or whether it felt like more than that. It sounds like more than it, that. But, well, oh, this is going to seem like a contradiction in terms, but I think it's a long-term bounce. So it's a ding, 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 ding. As see. opposed to a single boing. <laughs> you can gauge that all off four matches, can you? It's the way he's getting to them at half-time, I think. Because to be able to do that, and it's, it's happened in each of the matches, actually, um, against Man City in the previous game, they weren't doing very well. But they probably won the second half. You know, they they really put Manchester City under some pressure, and that speaks of progress of him. What looking at what they're doing wrong, and them listening to him. You know, to listen to a manager at half time. You don't have long to listen to him, and adapt, change, change your mindset, give more. It's it's looking. I think it's looking good. Tom, in the end, it didn't matter. But um, but was it a goal? Or did Casper Schmeichel have the ball under control? What do you think? It's got to be a goal, hasn't it? Nah. No, it's not under no, the laws of the on, game. come on, that's not control though, is it? It is under the laws of the game. Well then, we'll come to this later on, but Newcastle's goal shouldn't have stood either then in that respect because Nick Pope had both hands on the ball for no, that but he, he, No, but he lost it himself. You need to challenge. Oh, I mean, anyway, fine. I don't really think, I think it should have been a goal. I don't really think that he had control of the ball. But interestingly, on Kasper Schmeichel, I do think he embodies a slight issue with Leicester at the minute because we praised him very, very highly during the Euros. I can remember myself and Alison saying he's one of the best goalkeepers in the world. I think that was right at the time. He looks out of sorts, to use that very common footballing phrase, and I think that's kind of representative of Leicester's defence. Some other stats, Hugh, they've only kept one clean sheet all season. 27 goals conceded, that's the fourth worst in the Premier League. Uh, 235 shots against, that's the second worst in the Premier League. It's obviously missing for Farna is a big deal, but there seems to be a little bit more than that because they brought in Vestergaard. Johnny Evans is still a fairly experienced defender. They looked all over the place. On the previous show, I said to the Leicester fan, don't be worried, just take a season of transition. And then I watched the game yesterday and I started to think, actually, this is not great stuff, to be honest. I I think it said a lot that Jamie Vardy was on the bench, Mm. actually, and that they're going to prioritise the game against Napoli in the Europa League as maybe a route to the Champions League next year mm. more so than the Premier League I think that's obvious yeah you know? but also maybe just for a boost in spirit as well just yeah. to kind of keep it to stay in a cup competition as well because I, I mean I think they looked good going forward and I think for all of uh, Alisson's accurate praise for Steven Gerrard and his motivational tactics Leicester were the better team by a long way in the first half I felt I said that and if I, I know you did I'm just saying that I think they had James Madison and Harvey Barnes made better decisions at certain moments around the edge of the box they could have been 2 or 3 nil up but it's a strange one Leicester they looked I, I didn't expect them to be that bad defensively and they were really really poor they were also rattled easily rattled it was strange they were a different team for most of the second half and making worse decisions mm. I don't know where that's come from I wouldn't have had them down in my top five teams who get rattled easily before mm. before this season who were the other five four <laughs> <laughs> well it's more of a wish list I really. see. <laughs> <laughs> right let's get to the top of the table because it sees three teams separated 
by just two points after 15 games. Uh, Saturday saw three different leaders as the top three actually extended their gap to six points over the rest of the field. Uh, Chelsea were beaten 3-2 by West Ham. Liverpool snatched a late, late win at Wolves and Manchester City swept past Watford. Let's begin at the London Stadium. It was an absorbing contest. West Ham bouncing back from three Premier League games without a win. David Moyes said his side, though, weren't at their best, Tom. That's despite their victory. So did they get lucky? Well, they got a, a bit lucky. I mean, uh, Mendy's mistakes were obviously hugely key and a very lucky Masuaku cross that ends up in the goal. But I also think at the same time, the way they set up, the way the Moyes set up that team, it was the first time they'd started a game this season with three at the back, I believe, and in a week in which they had three games in six days, I think. And to to, to manage to manipulate them into a, a team that takes on Chelsea and matches them up and recognise that as well. This is the hardest period of the season to prepare for games and to recognise that Chelsea just do not do well against three at the back. And it took a little while to to actually get into the game. They had to accept that they were conceding the central areas of the pitch quite a lot. But the back three of Diop, Dawson and Zuma were brilliant. Suchek and Rice were excellent. It actually gives them an, another way of playing. But I think part of the reason why Moyes wasn't so glowing was a little bit because it wasn't how he wants to play. It was a way of winning the game, a way of stopping Chelsea winning the game. And there was a, a huge element of fortune in it, but they deserved it. Bowen, staggeringly good season, isn't he? Really, I really like him. He feels a bit old school. I'm not really sure why I think that. He just because maybe because he just covers a lot of ground and he's got everything. He defends well. He blocks. He harries. He's creative. He's imaginative. He's energetic. I really like him as a player. I mean, I you know, it felt like it felt like his show. To be quite honest. There's something, I mean, it's weird to say this, but there's just something, I, I really was expecting an upset because there's, A, there's something about West Ham. The London Stadium has been a problem for West Ham, but it's always, even when the fans were at their most vociferously cross about the whole move away from the Berlin ground, it's always got up for the visit of Chelsea. It's always created um, an atmosphere. And Chelsea without Kovacic, without Kante, just look a little, little more vulnerable than than they have been. So I just felt it was set up for aggression, which was embodied by Bowen. And it wasn't pretty football. But I think I think I think if you've thought about it enough, and, and Moyes has clearly got the players on side to say, look, this system is designed for this game. Just give it everything. And they did. They bought into it. So I like their flexibility, the commitment to it, the fact that they're prepared not to play the way Moyes wants to play sometimes just to get the, the win. That ground was bouncing. Imagine what West Ham could do if they were like that, if the crowd got behind them every single time. The atmosphere at the end was was amazing, but during the game it wasn't really. It was it, I hadn't been to the London Stadium for, for quite a while and I watched parts of uh, the Villa-Leicester game last night and just thought how incredible the atmosphere was there because of the, the stadium. But we've spoken loads about the stadium, but you're, you're, you're almost a especially where we sit you're almost a football pitch away from the and you find yourself just almost lost in other you see people around just chatting in other conversations because you forget a football match is on but the results now at the moment have are turning that horrible ground into 
an absolute fortress. A home. Like, <laughs> yes. Absolute fortress. Yes. How do you make a house a home? West Ham are showing us right now. Uh, Tom, let's talk about Chelsea because they haven't been great in their last couple of games. Was this coming, do you think? Well, this weekend was definitely a great weekend for making Tom look like an idiot from the previous game podcast show, wasn't it? First, there was Leicester. Then there was my other point I made about Chelsea managing to get a win regardless of what team they played or who, which players played or what positions and they get beaten. I don't know whether it was coming. One thing I did find interesting was Edouard Mendy. Obviously, they had massive issues with Kepa before. Mendy's done brilliantly since he came in, but there was a moment against Watford as well when he had the ball at his feet and he kind of invited quite a lot of pressure and conceded a chance, did so again to, in against West Ham and obviously conceded the penalty. It was interesting, Tuchel afterwards saying, we stick by Edu, nothing he's done wrong, blah, blah, blah. Though obviously without him today, we might have won 2-1. So <laughs> it's kind of like, yeah, cheers, boss. Thanks very much. Yeah. Um, so that, I wouldn't say, I'm not I'm not top spinning it into say it's a disaster, they need another new keeper, but it is interesting that I wouldn't be surprised to see teams target him with a very aggressive press in the next few games just because of what happened against Watford. Slightly rattled. Little bit rattled, potentially, yeah. Little bit rattled. And also there's a bit of an issue around Lukaku, isn't there? Again, Tuchel oh, yeah. saying... That was my next question. Do you know that was coming? I know, we're like one mind. That's, mm. the, that's <laughs> the thing about me and you. It was interesting to see, wasn't it, that he just doesn't look the same player that he did when he burst in back back into the scene back into the Premier League at the start of the season and Tuchel again said I shouldn't have brought him on he's not quite ready so there's a few little things with Chelsea at the minute but I wouldn't say it's a full-blown full-blown crisis I don't know I think that is a bit of a crisis I think that's really strange that you've got a player who costs that amount of money so much was riding on him being you know woohoo Chelsea are the ones who signed the reliable clever striker this season and he's got an ankle problem and you play him too soon, which, I mean, everyone knows. You don't, have, you don't need a degree in physiotherapy to know if you play on your ankle too soon, you might have a much more serious problem that keeps you out of the game for far longer. I have no idea. He's either ready or he's not ready. Don't play him if he isn't ready. It's ridiculous. I think Lukaku... Struggles with fitness as well in in just just in general because the reason he started this season so well at Chelsea was because he'd gone to gone back to Inter so early and was was so fit and I think this there, there's a knock on effect of the ankle injury is that he's lost the general fitness that he had so he's come back quite quite cumbersome really in a way his body language is not good is it no and it is something that 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 Tuchel's it's 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 not a huge problem because they they dealt really well with without him, but you almost felt I went, I went to Watford last week and thought that was a perfect opportunity. That felt like a game he would have played, but he's clearly not not fit at all. And and also you you do wonder as well whether the time in Italy has it made him playing against in a division like that has it made him appear like maybe a better striker than he actually is I, I don't know well I, I listen I think I think fitness is massively important for every player and I just think Lukaku I think you're right about what you're saying about him he, just, he doesn't look like the player that we saw in Italy and that that I think happened after the first few games at Chelsea there was already a, a change happening there now whether that is 
diet approach of the manager you know maybe it's a little bit of comfort you get bought for 97 and a half million pounds you know it was almost exile to Italy wasn't it you know you weren't good enough at Manchester United this was your chance at one of the world's biggest clubs and you weren't up to it and then he goes he's amazing at Inter he's come back to Chelsea and maybe he's feeling like well there you go I actually am as good as what I thought I was and maybe slightly resting on his laurels but, but um but Alison's right that the the the, the the central midfield, Kante and Kovacic, are a far bigger loss than him. I think they are what make Tuchel's system work so well. And Loftus Cheek in there isn't it just isn't the same player as either of them. And Jorginho, third best player in the world, he might be according to the Ballon d'Or. There are limitations to his game, and and Kante covers that when he plays alongside him. So does Kovacic. So that is where the big key losses the best the best Chelsea performances I've seen this season Kovacic has been if not crucial fairly central to them let's move on from Chelsea to Liverpool Arisa Divock uh, was the call from the away <laughs> end uh, at Molyneux at the weekend the man liver- labelled Liverpool super sub struck once again it was a dagger in the heart of all the Wolves supporters I think it was a 94th minute winner was it it seemed to mean so much to the Liverpool bench all the um all, all the, look, I know football fans are going to go mad at a winner that late on, but it felt like there was a bit of a release from the Liverpool fans who were maybe thinking, maybe they're all thinking that there's zero margin for error when it comes to Liverpool and, and this title race because the other squads are maybe that much better. Um, Tom, do, do you think that they're a race car that has, you know, you know, a race car that's got bits falling off of it, but the driver just keeps its foot, its foot all the way down? just to be sure that you're getting absolutely everything out of the vehicle, no matter what? A little bit. As long as you've got Mo Salah behind the wheel, I think you'll be all right um, in terms of competing in the title race. I'm not quite sure I'd go that far, and I still think Liverpool have got a pretty strong squad. Um, It's maybe not got as many glitzy names as Manchester City's and Chelsea's, Origi being one of them. You know, he's been around for a while. We all know him. It's kind of this, like, hapless, friendly, seemed like a nice lad, happy to sit on the bench, <laughs> come on and score a few important goals every now and again and just beams away to the away supporters going, I've done it again, lads, don't worry about it. But they, I mean, Liverpool still created chances, didn't they, beforehand? And they, they could and probably should have already been in the lead before Origi's goal. One thing I will say for him is that he doesn't play necessarily like that analogy you've just come up with. That goal was a very composed finish for a man in the box with his back to goal in the 94th minute needing to find his team a winner I think it was an excellent finish poor defending but yeah (laughs) poor defending (laughs) by a team who've defended very very well all Mm -hmm, season mm -hmm. we must say but yeah I mean that release does come from it being a small margin for error type title race doesn't it and that's what we're going to see between now and the end of the season these three teams Maybe if Chelsea struggles continue they'll fall away do you know what I mean you know like the Chelsea lose to West Ham and I think they still feel an element of being very much in the title race, very much in control. Hmm. Even a point at Wolves, I think, would have been greeted as some sort of disaster by the Liverpool fans. Am I reading too much into it, Alison? No, no, it felt like that. Oh, you get moments in any season and Liverpool have dropped points where they should not have dropped points. And if you do that too often, it's all very well saying you played really well, you begin to think maybe this isn't our season. So... The lunchtime kickoff, West Ham, who had beaten Liverpool at the London Stadium, so it seemed only fair that they should beat Chelsea as well. Sort of felt like an equalise, you know, an equalising vibe. 
then then the onus is on Liverpool to to win against Wolves, who are who are have been defending exceptionally well all season. But you know, if you're gonna if you think you can win the title, you have to be able to find a way through. So that sense of oh, it it just became oh, this isn't going to be our day. This isn't going to be our day. So when it is your day, you feel. I think the celebrations were lovely. I defy most neutrals not to have smiled at them. It was a bit fairy tale like, wasn't it? You bring on your super sub and he does it for you. Albeit it wasn't just him, it was a beautifully created goal and 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 a deserved win. They didn't they didn't smash and grab it in the manner that Brighton keep doing at the moment. They were um it was a it was a a good performance capped by a superb goal. Diogo Jota had a day to forget against his former side, though he sh- probably should have scored at least well two, to be perfectly honest. And I, and I wonder whether he can carry the weight of Mane and Salah's upcoming absence for the Africa Cup of Nations, whether Origi or Takumi Minamino, all three of them together can carry the weight of those two players leaving. Roberto Firmino probably 10 days away from being back in in the Liverpool squad. What do you think, Tom? Yeah, that was the point I was going to make, Hugh, is that you, when you look at the the three teams going for the title race, for Man City and for Chelsea, I think the, the this Christmas period is going to be so important in how close they are uh, to contending for it. For Liverpool, it's going to be January. And the, the, the one thing with, with Liverpool is that you do... The, the stats say it with Salah. He is the he is the standout player in the team. I think he's the standout player in the in the division. And without him, does it fall apart? Not quite fall apart. That's an exaggeration. But you expect moments like Origi produced. That's usually Salah doing that, isn't it? And a month, possibly, possibly a month without him, that's that's going to be a key moment for them. Tom, what do you think? Can they cope? I think they can. I think they can. I think Jota's continues despite a poor performance and managing to hit Connor Cody straight in in the midriff when he had the rest of the goal to play with. I think he continues to impress and be a lot better than I think a lot of people expected him to be at Liverpool. I think hopefully with Firmino back, he'd shown good signs of rediscovering some of his old form before the injury. So I think they can cope. And look, I mean, if Jurgen Klopp can't come up with ways to maybe tweak the system, maybe play Jordan Henderson in a more advanced role as he has done in recent weeks and as he did against Everton to find find that way to win. That's the other thing that Liverpool have got now with having won the title previously. They've got that kind of monkey off the back. They're not worried about that anymore. They've got that experience of winning a title recently. And that that bears fruit in these moments when you find a late winner away at Wolves. That's That's what comes through, whereas perhaps previously they wouldn't have. And it would have been, oh, they're going to fall short again type thing. I did have a caller on the radio at the weekend say that he wants Liverpool to back the manager in January and go and buy one or two decent players. His view was, if you look at the depth in the other squads, Liverpool don't have it. And how often do they have a genuine chance of winning the Premier League? Not that often. This period under Klopp might be... For him, once again, you know, a, a period that might be once in a 20, 30 year period. So win as many as you can, strike while the iron's hot, back the manager. Should they be buying someone in January? I understand the point about depth, uh, first of all, um, because they just do not. They uh, With 
City, it's one of those teams where you take players out. I mean, <laughs> Kevin De Bruyne has not been involved and they're just still mm. a juggernaut. They just you take players out and, and they have the system just still works. With Liverpool, I'm not quite sure. But but how easy is it to buy a player in January? It's it's not. And Klopp's never been too that they're a club that, that plans well in advance and I think are smart enough to do summer business. Now, when I asked that question, you closed your eyes for a long period of time, Alison. It was either the pain of the trap nerve. It's either the pain of me asking the question or, or the pain of the trap nerve. Which was it? Well, it's a stupid question because it's not going to happen. It's not. It's not going to happen. It was the question. It's not. It's not. It's not the current Liverpool's way. I mean, really, you're saying they should splash a lot of dosh because I don't think the, mar- I'm not. the market... The caller your was. caller. Mm-hmm. Anyone who's suggesting it. You splash a lot of dosh because of the Africa Cup of Nations. It's not... That's not a business model, is it? And also, who would you get? You're really... You're, so you're essentially laying out the fact that you're only being bought because you've got a couple of weeks that you, you're a bit bereft. That's not going to attract someone who's going to hit the ground running and score six goals for you. So that's just stupid, stupid thinking. OK, let's move on to Manchester City then. <laughs> they were just too good for Watford this weekend. Could have been six or seven, frankly, if they had a genuine goal scorer. In the end, it was Jack Grealish who was the profligate son. Seven wins in a row in all competitions. You sent City, who are now top of the table, are coming into that ominous title-winning form. The fixtures ahead looking very good for them, Tom, as well. It did feel a little bit like that. And I was I was thinking about that as we were reflecting on Chelsea stumbling a little bit, Liverpool needing a last-minute winner. There was that period in the title race last season, wasn't there, where I can't remember exactly what the game was, but it just felt like it all clicked for City and then they went on that unbelievable run and and pushed ahead and got clear of their rivals. I don't think that will be the case this season, but of the three teams heading into this period, they look the most the most unlikely to slip up. And there you go. Given my performance on the previous show and the jinx is that I put on Chelsea, that'll probably do City well going into this week. But yeah, I mean, and, and your point about a goal scorer, it's, that was much like that last season, wasn't it, really? They played without a striker and won the title. So I don't think that'll be a concern for Pep. All right. Well, yeah, I think City are pretty good at the moment. I think they're going to take some stopping as far as the title race is concerned. I think one player who in particular is standing out right now is Bernardo Silva at five in five Premier League appearances last week. His manager called him the best player in the league right now. Do you do do you, do we think he could challenge Salah for the Player of the Year? No. <laughs> <laughs> I think the listeners should know that Hugh definitely directed that question at Tom Roddy, <laughs> and Alison Rudd from in the corner jumped in to defend. We, we, we don't have to. We don't have to. You know, we don't have to discuss it if you don't want us to. Alison. <laughs> There's plenty more for us to discuss. That'd be very, very, very interesting if someone can make a case for it, but I don't think they're going to. We can move on from it because there is one other question. Kane or Haaland in January for City? Because they were very wasteful in this game. I know it's been asked all season long. Do they need to get a genuine goal scorer? They can afford it, just so you know. No, I think we should discuss Silver because he he has... I mean, the remarkable thing about Silver is the the size of the guy and the versatility of the guy. And having been in a situation where he couldn't... It looked like he was going to leave the club and he comes back in. He's got incredible calmness in front of goal. I think he scored... I think he scored seven goals this season and only had 15 shots. But then he also somehow... A guy of his build and 
sort of weight is, is playing sometimes as a defensive midfielder as well. He sort of sums up Pep Guardiola's Man City, really, in a way. Um, and it's remarkable how you do have these situations at City where players just come in and out at different points. I mean, you look at Sterling, who's got four goals in seven games now and looks in good form again when not so long ago, really not so long ago. And it's still uncertain about his future and talk of Barcelona and his interest in that and things like that. To, to answer your question, uh, I'm afraid I do agree with Alison that Salah absolutely right now is the standout. I think what Tom's touching on there, Hugh, is everyone's favourite word on this podcast. Say it with me now. <laughs> Narrative. <Whee! laughs> and if you want, if you want a tale, if you want a tale from you know hard times to maybe on the way out to being a standout performer, then you can make an argument for Bernardo Silva for being player of the year. If you want to go for the obvious choice and go, yeah, brilliant, isn't he fantastic? Then yeah, you can go for Mo Salah. But I think, as Tom hinted at there, it is remarkable what he's done. It does sum up, as Tom said, Pep's Man City because, you know, you had last season people talking about Jao Cancelo and playing out of position in this strange kind of inside fullback type role. He just gets a lot out of his players and even this summer didn't get Harry Kane. He's taken one of his squad players and turned him into one of the best players in the league. And so if you like a good narrative, then Bernardo's your man for player of the year. Your other question, Hugh, about whether City should splash the cash on a very high-profile striker, I think <laughs> I think the other um, teams hoping to win the title this season would be actually quite pleased because it would make City more predictable and easier to set up again. I think at the mm. moment it's really hard you're the opposition to plan what you're going to do to defend against City because you just don't know who's going to play where where the goals are going to come from they're so interchangeable as Tom said they're just Tony Cascarino suggested in the game today Monday that Pep's just having a bit of a laugh but I, I <laughs> and amusing himself you know he's got lots of toys and he wants to play with them all but it's it's more than that. It just makes it very, very difficult to know what to... I, you know, I would say at the moment, if you're facing Liverpool, you know what you're going to get with Mo Salah. It doesn't mean you're going to be able to, to, to stop him, but you can at least plan for it. Against City, you don't know what you're going to get. So City pay a lot of money for a, a top striker. They're going to feel under some pressure. Pep's going to feel under some pressure to play him for most matches. And that just, I think, might, you know just might make it sort of give someone a sort of sense of relief that they at least know the shape they're going to get when they when they face City. What did we think of Grealish playing um, playing in that position? Well, he, got... he wasn't effective, but mm. it made the whole team more difficult to... Mm. I mean, how do you plan for that? Yeah. I, I thought the whole team was effective. I thought he was still effective. He should have scored twice, yeah. Yeah. really, shouldn't he? And I do think mm. that will be the next stage for him is... Um, and with Sterling finding form it almost lends itself to, to Grealish playing in that position. And, and he, he, I think it will come very soon. If you watch, even though we talk about a false nine at Manchester City, if you watch what they've done over the last few games, one of the central midfielders immediately goes and plays up against one of the centre-backs and there's a front four across the front and there's loads of decisions then for the defence to make because they keep the ball so well down the flanks, Manchester City. So they've now got... They haven't got a genuine centre forward, but they've now got an extra body in the box and it's it's always a midfielder. So even though Grealish was in there and should have scored probably four, two's a bit generous. There is always another player who could pick up one of those chances as well and they just look like they can score 
so many. I don't think it's going to cost them, but it might in the Champions League. Just saying, it might in the Champions League. Loads more for us to discuss. That's the top of the table covered and Aston Villa as well. Up next, we'll talk about the Women's FA Cup final before a first win of the season for Newcastle. If you're enjoying the podcast, remember, rate us, leave us a review and make sure you're subscribed. 
it does just show go to show as Emma said after you know when she come to England people were like oh how is she going to get on she's played in the US she's played in Australia she won't be able to hack it in the Women's Super League and I think you know she's playing against Arsenal the the form team in the country at the moment and and she produces a finish like that against Manuela Zinsberger who to be fair up until that point had, had pretty much kept kept Arsenal in it for, for long parts of the first half so she was you know to produce that finish against such a high level opponent as well um, What do you think this means for Arsenal? They've been great under their new boss so far this season but it was a comfortable victory for Chelsea do you think that's going to affect the, the title race domestically now? Yeah I think it was just that I don't want to say naivety but I think it was a little bit I think they just, from from the minute that Frank Kirby's first goal went in, you know, two minutes, 20 seconds, I think it was, they just they just looked all at sea and they never quite recovered. And it's a massive, massive week for them because they're playing Barcelona in the Champions League at the Emirates. And I think, you know, Barcelona, as good as Chelsea are, Barcelona ripped Chelsea apart last season. And, and we know how good Barcelona are. They've beat Arsenal already this season. So I think... It, it's, it's not the game you really want to have after you after you've just played Chelsea. Um, so I think they'll. It's a big week. It's a big test for for Jonas Eidevel. As you say, they've made such a good start. It's been very smooth sailing, and and these two games back to back are going to really see how far Arsenal have to go to actually win trophies. I think that's the the next step, I suppose, for this Arsenal team. Uh, how do you see that game going in midweek? It's hard to look past a, a Barcelona win, to be honest. I think maybe in that that first game between the two teams, um, which which Barcelona sort of heavily won, I think it probably won't be that much of a big scoreline. I think Jonas will have learned from that game and he admitted that actually he'd probably underestimated just how good Barcelona were. And I don't think he'll do that this time. I think they'll probably be a little bit more defensive. But I think, you know, Barcelona are, for me, the, be- the best team in the world by by some margin at the moment. And it's, it's hard to see past a Barcelona win. Molly Hudson, thanks for joining us on the Game Podcast to look back at that FA Cup uh, win for Chelsea and what Arsenal have next to do in the Champions League. Appreciate it. Uh, up next, we'll be talking about Newcastle United. You'll also hear from the Arsenal goalkeeper, Aaron Ramsdale. Stay with us on the game. So let's go back to the Premier League finally and finally on the game podcast. Newcastle have a first win of the Premier League season. Callum Wilson's fortunate goal was the difference as they beat Burnley 1-0 at St. James's Park. Alison, how much better are Newcastle under Eddie Howe, if at all? Well, they're not really much better, are they? I mean, I don't, I'm not sure they were the better team on the day. Um, Sean Dyche is... He, he always protects his players, but yeah, I think he was genuinely... <laughs> genuinely surprised that they didn't win the game it was a bit freaky we've mentioned Pope's mistake uh, Tom Clark doesn't believe um, well believes there's some some sort of inconsistency with the way we apply whether a goalkeeper's in control of the ball or not I mean he, he Pope hit the player he was not fouled and then lost possession so but it was freaky from in terms of the fact it gave Newcastle golden opportunity to score a goal that they hadn't particularly carved for themselves. Otherwise, I mean, Howe says he's worked very hard on their self-belief, can't afford for them to keep looking at the table and looking at the stats and thinking we're doomed, we're doomed. Um, And they did, there was a certain bounciness to them, which was, which was good. But I, I mean, in terms of them looking particularly more adept as a football team, no, I don't think they did really. I mean, I'm I'm not discounting completely 
the the effect it has to have a new manager who I mean, he's saying all the right things, Eddie Howe. He seems quite upbeat and um, they were running the hard yards and, and giving it something. But there's still an element of them being disjointed. And I don't know. I, I can he, Basically, can Eddie Howe talk his way out of trouble? I don't think so. What did you think of it, Tom? I think there's just a general, let's shoot more. Let's try and get, let's throw. Uh, listen, I did say throw the kitchen sink at it. You I did, did say yeah. a player like Leeds United. It, it does feel a little bit like that, to be honest. It's well. It's not quite Leeds United, but I, I agree with you. That it's slightly more. It's enthusiastic, isn't it? Let's let's at least give Eddie Howe that. It's enthusiastic. <laughs> oh, it? you've never sounded so patronising in your life. Have I not? No. Oh, God. I, I've heard him sound. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really good piece, Tom. Thank you very much. No, um, it did. It it feels a little bit like that. Yeah, enthusiastic is the word. They haven't improved. Allison's right. But what did we talk about last week? Heading into this game it being a must-win just from the point of view of the mood around Newcastle. And they still have that incredibly tough fixture list coming up that you highlighted on the previous show, Hugh. That doesn't change, but at least they're now on 10 points. At least they've got a win. So that if they maybe get a draw, dare I say it, maybe even a win and a draw in the coming games, which would be an incredible achievement given who they're playing, then they can really kick on. But... The reality is that they might go through the next few games having lost them all. And then Burnley, who are their rivals, have got Watford and Everton in their next few games. So could pull away from them again. So yeah, but the the point is, it just lifts the mood a little bit, takes that pressure off. As Johnny was saying on the previous show, haven't won since May, is it, or something? Something ridiculous like that. It just means they head into this horrible period of fixtures without that hanging over them. They have an important game against Leicester next weekend who are going to be playing on Thursday night in the Europa League. That's must win, really, because you've got Liverpool, Manchester City, Manchester United and then Everton before the January transfer window and the opportunity to to bring in some more players. Yeah, sure. But Norwich was must win as well, wasn't it? The problem I see is that who else is going to replace them? I think Watford maybe have enough. I actually wonder whether Palace could get sucked in at all. But it's 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 just so. I think I I actually see improvements. Um, I'm wondering who the guy wearing Joel Linton's top is um, recently because <laughs> he is is it's not the guy who was there under Benitez. It, it was really interesting the way how responded to the game in saying that there was a psychological change almost in his team. I mean, there was the Martin Hardy's report points out this today points out this great picture of them all. There's 40 people in this selfie posed after the game because they finally got a win. But I guess that just sums up what Howe was saying. And it wasn't necessarily saying where they were right now, but it almost reflects on where they were before as if everything, it was doomsday every game. They were going to be beaten every single time. As we know, as we've discussed many times, the, the transfer window is going to be key for them. And it's more, you know, there's talk of Lingard. It's the defence that needs sorted. Just finally on this, Burnley... Is this going to be their year to go down? Um, Alison said they were probably the better team at the weekend, but they were beaten. All three teams in the bottom three have 10 points, but is that going to be the bottom three at the end of the season? It, it, well, it could well be. I did have, I have to say, I've watched Burnley, as I do, because I'm a little bit of a secret fan, mm. and they look a little bit unburnley like this season. I'm not quite sure what it is. They just look a little bit more susceptible to a panic. Alison was talking about her teams at the start of the show that likely to panic. They look, a, and that you wouldn't have said that about them a long time ago. The other thing I would quickly say 
in comparison with Newcastle and Burnley. And this was when I went to listen to Sean Dyche's interview because I was convinced he was going to say what I thought, which was and if that foul happens on any other goalkeeper in the Premier League, it'd be given as a foul because <laughs> it's Burnley. And he didn't. What he actually said was, fair play to Callum Wilson. I say that to my strikers all the time. Anticipate that you might get a moment, that you might get a chance. And I was reflecting on it and I wonder whether... Does anyone think there's a better striker than Callum Wilson in that bottom bracket of teams? And for all, there's a talk about Newcastle signing Jesse Lingard. Tom rightly says they need to sign defenders. I wonder whether they've already got... Yeah, they might sign another forward. But in Callum Wilson, whether they've already got that kind of deadly, work hard, take those chances that will win you games of those bottom teams. And I think they might. I think he might be the best of the bunch down there. I want to defend Burnley, though. They were without Ben Mee. And if you remember, they had a really sticky patch at the start of last season. And that was when Ben Mee was not there. Yeah, They are. They You shouldn't be dependent on one player. But I mean, Liverpool struggled without Van Dijk. Ben Mee is Burnley's Van Dijk. I did see a great story this weekend, though, linking both Ben Mee and James Tarkovsky with a move to Newcastle. Now, if you're going to have all the money yeah. in the world, just buy all your relegation rivals' exactly. players. That's the, <laughs> Who needs superstars? Well, we joked about it, didn't we, when they were looking for a manager, that they should just go and get Tarkovsky and Sean Dyche, and maybe they'll just change their mind and just get their central defensive pairing as well, because that immediately, immediately relegates Burnley, as Alison said. Do you think either of them are going to stay up, Tom? I think I said on a previous show that Norwich would go down and then a listener got in touch and said yeah but you neglected to mention who the other two would be and I think I came up with Watford and Brentford in the end so just to stop that listener getting in touch and say you lied to me I'm going to stick with them and say that Burnley and Newcastle will just survive Okay, interesting, interesting. Uh, To all of you Manchester United fans, before we end the podcast, we will be discussing not just Ralph Rannick's first, but also his second game in charge at Old Trafford after the Champions League game on Thursday. So stay tuned uh, for that one. Good win for United at the weekend. Loads of changes. We'll discuss all of those on Thursday because we do have a bit of bumper content before you go. I should say thank you all to uh, Alison Rudd, Tom Roddy and Tom Clark. Uh, But you can't say thank you to me until I've just pointed out you keep mentioning Thursday on Friday it's the first meeting between insects ever in the Premier League when Brentford the Bees take on Watford the Hornets thanks to Bill Edgar I love that (laughs) (laughs) Uh, now someone else is going to tell us uh, someone's going to get in touch and say oh hold on a minute these two animals or these two no you won't beat Bill no No chance I I also tried out Bill Edgar's quiz the other day and got 15 out of 25, which is on on times. Honestly, you try it. I want to know what you get. Oh, really? Try it before Thursday. Send it it to me. I will. Honestly, I guessed, I must confess, I guessed half of them. (laughs) I'll try it out yourselves as well. Um, We're going to hear, before we go, from the Arsenal and England goalkeeper, Aaron Ramsdale, who's spoken to Tom Roddy. Tom, how was he? He was good. Yeah, Yeah. he's um, he's very ordinary, very ordinary guy. Wow, that's harsh. (laughs) (laughs) is it is it it wasn't intended to be at all just ordinary uh, and i suppose that's the point as well i kind of found the the extraordinary in the ordinary i mean he's he's not manicured in any way i found that his sort of family upbringing seems to be key in this and and he makes he just makes some wise decisions like he he speaks about the summer and the backlash that he got from when everyone said what the hell are arsenal doing signing a goalkeeper who's been relegated twice from the premier league back to back and he turned off his notifications because he just didn't want to see it and I, and i i always wonder why more premier league players don't do that because noise whether positive or negative is 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 influences you too much I think we can read 
Tom Roddy's full interview with Aaron Ramsdale in the Times. But we have given you a slice of the audio here, especially as Arsenal play Everton this evening. There's a rivalry in the England camp with Jordan Pickford and Aaron Ramsdale that we're sort of creating here. But who, who knows? It could continue from here on out because both young goalkeepers with bright futures. I think even though Jordan Pickford's getting on a bit, but he's still got a bright future ahead of him. Listen, here is Tom Roddy with Aaron Ramsdale. I'll be back shortly to tell you how you can subscribe, etc., etc. When you got that call up in the summer and when you had your cap, that must have been a really nice moment and maybe emotional moment with your family. Yeah, well, as the national anthem was going on, when I against San Marino, I look up and thankfully my mum, one of my brothers and my girlfriend and my agent managed to sort flights like super last minute. I see my girlfriend crying, my mum and dad both crying, uh, my brother and my agent were like holding it together. So... That was an emotional thing, but I had Harry Maguire behind me in the in the line, and I played with his brother at Chesterfield. We were both we both played for Sheffield United, but I never played with H. I played with his brother at Chesterfield on loan, so I seen quite a bit of Harry, and he'd come and watch and stuff. And he always reminds me one of the games I came to watch. I made a mistake, and we're walking out, and he went some journey this from Chesterfield, isn't it? And I was just like straight away, I was just sort of chilled out, relaxed, and and um. It was special and obviously this from, from the summer onwards, it was a bit disappointing not to get the call up for the first camp of the year. But again, that was like a blessing in disguise. I got two weeks with 12, 13 of the lads at Arsenal for me to fully earn their respect and stuff. And it's just been whirlwind. And like I say, I think said many times, I think Jordan's been absolutely outstanding. It's going to take a lot for me to, to get in front of him and Sam, Nick Pope, just because he's not been in the squad recently. Still very, very highly rated. Very good goalkeeper, Dean Henderson as well. So there's a long way to go. And that obviously just comes down to me playing Arsenal, doing well. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, Gareth said, it was a nice quote he said, which must have given you, fueled the fire for, for Qatar and the ambition where he said, you know, the fight is on, that that position is available for those, for whoever wants it, the number one jersey. H- has it given you the sort of taste and belief that, that you could be number one? Come then? I have the belief it's whether I believe I can do it in that time. I have, I have the belief in myself that one day, whether it'll be in eight years' time or whenever, I have the belief that I'll, in myself, that I'll have a run of games. But like I keep saying, like Jordan for England, major tournaments, I don't know, he's just one of our best players all the time. So uh, it's going to be really difficult. And obviously when the manager says that, then it obviously does give you a boost because you go from thinking sort of it's sort of set in stone to there's a chance. It might be a really slim chance, but when there's hope, there's always a ch- there's always that fighting spirit. And it's a long way away and anything can happen until then. But keep playing for Arsenal, keep doing well, then hopefully I'll be, be in with a shout and, and we'll see what happens. I'll be very happy to go, to be honest. <laughs> Gareth has a real way with words. What did, what did he say to you, whether for the game that you were picked or was, was there a moment where it really struck him talking to you? For the game, he, he said, without being very dis- uh, without being disrespectful, the games in the league would be harder than probably what you're going to face. You're not going to do too much. You might be called upon once or twice and that's what we're looking at if you can keep your concentration and, and stuff like that. And he was almost like he was a mind reader. This is exactly what happened. I'd one shot to save, one cross and a few passes out. And he put his arm around me at the end and just said, done what you needed to do, done well. So I was just like, if, if he's happy, then I'll be happy. 
So that is the Arsenal and England goalkeeper Aaron Ramsdale speaking to our very own Tom Roddy. Once again, you can read the full interview in The Times right now. So make sure you're subscribed to The Times and The Sunday Times for more of our award-winning journalism. Remember, sign up today. You will get yourself one month free. Just go online to check it out. It's thetimes.co.uk forward slash the game. We'll be back on Thursday reviewing all of the Champions League action on the way. We'll see you then. Going to be an exciting day today. I'm heading up to Lincoln.